within the depths of the strip mall of the damned. I've told you guys already, this is called the TBD Shopping Plaza. Anyways, lies a decrepit video store. Okay, okay. Long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders spinning their patient webs. All you need is a Swiffer, guys. Just get one Swiffer on here. Anyway, beyond the ancient batwing doors, guarding the sepulchre where once were hidden the perverse and heretical. Yeah, it's still perverse and heretical on there. A secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and disillusion. I think you guys were all mad before the movies. Anyway, draw closer, dear listeners, if there are any. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. The story so far. Having failed to persuade newcoming neighbor Hope to go away, the Conclave proceeds to examine 1983 goth noir vampire sex fest The Hunger, directed by Tony Scott. In this most 80s of 80s goth noir movies, David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve are chic in the streets and undead in the bed. After seducing a couple in a bar, they go over to their Miami Vice-style sex den to have a little drink. All is well. However, all is not well. Bowie has been given the gift of eternal life, but not eternal youth, which really does show you why you have to read the small print and is aging rapidly. Seeking answers, he comes across Susan Sarandon, who is performing strange experiments on angry monkeys. She is a scientist looking into premature aging, and Bowie thinks she might be able to help. All is well again. However, all remains not being well, as Sarandon doesn't take him seriously. It looks like time is running out for old Bowie, who is by now too weak to even murder a 1980s roller disco cliche guy. Fortunately, a young music student has come by for a lesson, and she's about to get a very pointed one. While all this is going on, Brother Methuselah has got it into his head that blood drinking eternal youth sounds like a cracking way to spend an afternoon. And he has got a plan. A, plan. a stupid plan. Let's find out what's happening next. Alright, that was enough of a snack break, guys. Everybody got their drinks topped off? Alright, let's bring it back in. Completely chill with the weird old guy hungrily eyeing her, Alice asks if he is John's father while she's just sort of wandering around the place looking at things and taking the occasional Polaroid. She had planned to just leave a note for Miriam, but she has her violin with her and tells old Bowie about a piece she's been working on. He asks her to play for him and she obliges because this is the 80s and stranger danger isn't a thing yet, at least for big city latchkey kids. So she thinks Can nothing confirm. of- Can oh, confirm. <laughs> Throwback, throwback. So she thinks nothing of hanging out alone in an adult's apartment with another adult she doesn't know. As Absolutely Alice... can confirm. That was a thing that happened in the early 80s. They had to run all those PSAs back when I was a kid about, I, like, it... this is why you don't go with strangers and do stuff. <laughs> Otherwise, you end up in this movie, I guess. <laughs> Watch out. There could be vampires. Uh, yet more allegory from this film. Oh, yeah. As Alice plays, old Bowie is overcome with the hunger. He busts out his tiny necklace dagger TM and attacks Alice from behind. Somehow Alice is still wearing her Polaroid camera around her neck while playing violin and she snaps a picture on her way down. The Polaroid photo falls dramatically to the floor while old Bowie feeds on Alice in the background. All she ever wanted was to hang around while she was waiting for the man. Later, Miriam returns home and old Bowie confronts her. It's clear that he hasn't got long left. You said forever, he repeats with obvious betrayal in his voice. 
They have flashbacks to 18th century France, presumably we're meant to think that this is where they met, but this time Old Bowie chose to look back in anger. He confronts his lover in all his wrinkly glory and demands, Kiss me! Kiss Miriam me! Kiss <laughs> me! Brother Methuselah, you need to go sit down and cool off. He's getting a little antsy over there. Miriam pushes through her obvious revulsion and obliges. Whether this was Miriam's disgust for John or genuine disgust on the part of Deneau for having to make skin contact with those heavy prosthetics, uh, I mean, makeup illusions is anyone's guess. Miriam finally notices the body-sized blood stain on the floor, which she had previously overlooked. I she, guess she wasn't should... hungry. No, uh, well, maybe. <laughs> She shouldn't I mean, have you looked. You catch people licking gravy up off the floor, right? I mean, if you see a giant pool of gravy on the floor, it's not like you're just going to, you know, unless you're really starving. But anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Now I'm just picturing that, and that's burned into my brain forever. She shouldn't have looked at the carpet. He's done something awful on it. She Did sees the pol- the nose of the rolled up newspaper? Yeah, right? <laughs> she sees the Polaroid in the grisly puddle that used to be a tween and makes the connection with Alice. She turns to John and asks, slash accuses him, what did you do? John begs her, give me a little longer, and collapses. Miriam says she can't, so John begs instead for death, and Miriam replies again, I can't. He's really making her feel under pressure. Dun 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 da da dun 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 da da dun 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 Actually, quick side note. Um, in the book, the reason why she's so pissed off about this is because uh, Alice was supposed to have been Bowie's replacement. She knew this was coming, and they were, much as I hate to use this term in the charged times in which we live, but this would have been a completely accurate term given what they were doing, grooming of Alice. Mm. Miriam carries Alice's body to the incinerator in the basement, and oh yeah, it turns uh, out they have a massive human body-sized incinerator right there in the basement, because of course they do. <laughs> to be fair, on Gen Z in the before times, these were fairly common in older buildings. They are for burning trash, and for heating the building in the times when nobody gave a fuck about carbon footprints. Yeah, no, that's not a joke. They used to heat the building by burning garbage. And we wonder why now suddenly the whole planet is on fire. Like, isn't that also just carbon monoxide poisoning too? Oh yeah, no, I mean, like, like we're still not that far removed from the uh, from the pea soup fog days of jolly old London when uh, they burned Holy rocks shit. to heat their homes and, and people died from all the sulfuric acid that the fog would turn into from all the coal emissions from everybody's house. Oh my and then God. so, you know, even in the late 70s, early 80s, they still had incinerators in buildings where they would burn trash. You know, you just, you had a, sh a chute in your apartment, you'd dump all the shit down the chute and they would just go to the incinerator and burn, 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 burn. Anyway, somehow no one has noticed the copious amount of bodies that this couple carries into their basement. By the time Miriam returns, old Bowie is completely decrepit, so she cradles him in her arms and carries him away. Just picks him up like a cloth sack full of sexy boomerangs. He tries to say something about it, and she's all like, Shh, John, I'm only dancing. Ah. <laughs> Next, we cut to what is presumably an attic. 
Miriam has somberly carted a dying ancient rock god up an entire building from basement to attic. And that's real dedication to the bit right there. Up in the dark, sinister rafters, there is a circle of light shining in from the ceiling and attracting doves, because higher-end properties don't allow pigeons. They presumably shit everywhere. I don't know know, a single speck of dove shit anywhere in this attic. I mean, and you have to imagine yeah, the, like, and, you know, <laughs> the film crew, like, they had to be just swimming in this stuff. Oh, art, yeah. Art department. All right, dove took a dump. Go clean it. Yep, yep. <sighs> Not going to be grips. Not going to be grip department. Not this no, time. No, no, it's not g &E. That's all our department, man. That's <laughs> <laughs> Poor bastards. Denov parts the sea of doves. We can only assume that the lingering shadows disguise a reeking inch-deep carpet of guano and lays old Bowie in the circle of light, surrounded by, yes, more gauzy curtains. She then puts him into a cheap wooden coffin, and it turns out that there are a lot of coffins stacked around the room. Now, from the flashbacks, we know that they didn't always live here. So at some point, they were moving house, and one wonders if Bowie made mention of the large collection of ancient funerary caskets that Miriam was bringing along. It's not like chucking an old end table in the attic because you'll find a spot for it later. <laughs> Weird that she keeps her coffins in an attic instead of down in the underground. Well, you got to keep them somewhere, you know. Yeah. I mean, might as well. Again, that's where, that's where kids store their old stuffed toys when they're done with them is in the attic, right? Ugh. Whoever is interred in these coffins, Miriam seems to have uh, an emotional... He uh, said turd. Nice. Let's go. <laughs> Whenever... Or whoever. Whenever. Whoever is interred in these coffins, <laughs> Miriam seems to have an emotional connection to them. She strokes her hands over the crumbling wooden lids and asks that they be kind to him, presumably by keeping the bastard doves away or something. She calls them my loves and speaks to them in a way that makes it obvious they aren't dead. This isn't like someone talking at a headstone, but knowing it's just symbolic, she's really talking and they really hear her a real we are the dead kind of vibe oh you know i just can't figure that out what she's doing here she says be kind to him how can they be kind to him they're all boxed up like he is too and stuff yeah. in the attic what are they gonna do use harsh language yeah <laughs> they're gonna use vicious mockery very aggressively <laughs> you have a bunch of passive aggressive vampire mummies in the attic <laughs> All they do is just talk trash for eternity. Oh, hold up. I need to towel off my drink. I made a themed cocktail just for this movie. Uh-huh. I call it a bloody old Bowie. And get it? It's got cranberry juice to give it a good bloody color. Vodka to give you that fun, lightheaded blood loss feeling. And lemonade, reminiscent of elderly incontinence. But no ice. <laughs> you have to ask for that. <laughs> Ah, that's cool. <laughs> you people are no fun. That is quality theme cocktail action. I'll be right back. That sounds good. Bring me one. Got it. Yummy, yummy vodka. I'm going to drink a lot. <laughs> Cranberry juice. Ah, mm. oh, whatever. It's just garnish anyway. I got the main ingredients right here. <clears throat> Want me to see me play the cello? <gasps> the second sexiest of all instruments? Oh, I've got a French horn around here somewhere. 
I'm a young man. I'm a young man. Kiss me. Ugh, I've seen this before. Did you take all your meds at once or something? How many pills did you take? Um, fall under my sexy spell. Oh, you did not just wave your gauzy curtain around at me. Hey, give me that. Ah, uh, And don't do it again, or I'll show you a whole new way to play the French horn. Oh, no, we never had to put up with this. Oh. Guys, after this point, Bowie's basically done. He's boxed up. What do we think of him in this film? Well, uh, he's not bad. I he's... wish he was the David Bowie we know and love instead of a withered old skeleton more. I was going <laughs> to say that, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have the gravitas of, of Bowie and Labyrinth. So... If you think of your film as, as like a meal, Bowie's like bacon. You don't want him as your entree. It's too much. It's overwhelming. It's overpowering. But you've got him on the side. You've got him just like accenting everything else and uh, complimenting everything else. He works great. You're saying that Bowie is the ultimate side piece? <laughs> yeah. A little bit of Bowie buffet, you might say. Yes. Oh, but if you, if you look at the movies where he's been the lead, like The Man Who Fell to Earth and The Man Who Sold the World, and, well, this film... It's a lot, and they're very much sources of cinemania. But if you look I at films like remember, like Zoolander, yeah. where he was just a, he just had a cameo, or The Prestige, where he was Nikola Tesla, he just he adds a little something. You know, he just kind of gives it some crunch and some salt, and it's he he just gives it a little something. But you don't want a whole plate of them. I get, I did uh, read in a later interview he kind of got a little bit bored with the project halfway through. <laughs> as one would do with an entire plate of bacon, right? It seems exciting. And then halfway through, you're like, I, I think, I mean, it's, a, it's the early yeah, 80s. Cool. He had a lot going on. There was a lot on the horizon. And I think he kind of maybe went into this film and thought it'd be a quick job and a, a short way into filming, maybe thought, okay, I'm kind of done with this. I think perhaps the Irish would take you to task on uh, throwing shade on an entire plate full of bacon. <laughs> I can just see Bowie going. Uh, the Irish have made some go. wonderful contributions to film and cuisine, haven't they? Yes, they I, certainly have. I can just see David Bowie going. Look, man, this is gig has gone on for weeks. I've already banged everybody on the set. I'm done. Come You're again? Keeping me too long. I'm just the bacon. <laughs> like you am... could throw 15 minutes of Bowie into like any film, any show, and it would make it better, and it'd be great. But you go much beyond that, and it's just cloying and overwhelming. Yeah, I can dig it. So I think he should reserve his leading man status for music and wow. and stick to being a side piece in films. That's, not, that's my opinion. Not, so you're not fond of a BLT, a Bowie lettuce and tomato sandwich? No, that would be okay. The Bowie is nice you know, and lean, and the tomatoes, they're just so perky. <laughs> I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. You season that with a little Ziggy Stardust, you're perfect. Exactly. Star Ziggy Stardust, not Ziggy Star like slather. Not a slab of Ziggy. Dusting. Just a sprinkle of booger sugar. Exactly. Add some thin white duke over the bread and <laughs> if you want duke on your bread, that's you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. While all this is going on, Susan Sarandon is trying to work out who her mystery pensioner was. She remembers John's last name and looks him up in this ancient thing called a phone book. She gets the address yeah, and heads over to book. Did you get that? You actually used to be able to look up people's phone numbers in books you could find all over the city. 
Jeez. Like, I... This is what you did before you had the internet. If you're a, a private detective, you actually had a job. Now, oh, if you want to find man. somebody's phone number, you have to go pay someone. They still have them. They're still listed. You just have to go to a website and pay for it now. Jeez. A different age. Anyway, she gets the address and heads over to apologize and pay a visit to this geriatric curiosity. Miriam eyes up the doctor in a very creepy slash seductive way before telling her that John has gone to Switzerland. This is the early 80s, so that doesn't have nearly as creepy a vibe as it would now. Sarandon doesn't mind the ogle. She writes her number on a piece of paper and gives it to Deneuve before leaving. Is this yeah. is saying that he's gone to Switzerland, the vampire equivalent of telling a kid that their dog has gone to live on a farm up in the country? Oh, yeah. Most definitely. Yeah, uh, uh, John went to go pick up some uh, cigarettes and he has he's not back yet. But it's been five years! He's still getting cigarettes. She obviously likes this couple of kooks. A walking New York stereotype comes up to Miriam and introduces himself as a detective investigating Alice's disappearance. Seriously, this guy is discount store Columbo. Oh, he this looks is Dan Hadaya. Dan Hadaya. He is uh, the guy who plays, uh, is it General Perez in Alien Resurrection? Nice. So you see him here, he's very young, but he still has exactly that same look on his face, that same underbite, the same like intense eye bug that he gives everything. I mean, this guy is a fantastic character actor in everything he's in. Love him. Yeah. <laughs> I did like his vibe when he came in. He's just very much detective without really even introducing himself it's great he's funny like like i think this is probably the youngest i've ever seen him i don't i don't know if he was in anything before this but um oh one other note is that dan hadaya is uh connected to to at least other movies of cinemania that that classic piece of intense cinemania buckaroo bonsai he was in that next to peter weller playing gomez he looks unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed miriam invites him up the incredibly discreet maid has obviously been in because there's no blood anywhere. While talking to the detective, Miriam fiddles with the paper in her pocket and we flash to alternating scenes of Sarandon walking and a semi-truck somehow speeding down a narrow city street. Miriam clutches the paper and seems to stop the distracted Sarandon being hit by the truck. Cut back to Miriam explaining to the detective that her necklace, which conceals her tiny necklace dagger TM, is an Ankh, an ancient Egyptian symbol for everlasting life. And this is the reason why goths have adopted the Ankh as their symbol. I'm, I am reasonably sure that it was this movie because, because of the Ankhs feature so, so prominently. When Sarandon returns to her office, she keeps having auditory hallucinations of the phone ringing, maybe because Miriam is fondling the scrap of paper with her phone number. No longer able to resist her curiosity, Sarandon returns to Miriam slash John's apartment building. Miriam gives her a glass of port, which she promptly spills on her shirt. Oh, dearie me, would you look at that? <laughs> the fairly pale colored port instantly becomes bright blood red on Sarandon's super thin white 1980s t-shirt. Back then, you paid extra for nipple revealing thinness. Miriam offers to find her a new shirt, provided they can do so in her dimly lit walk-in closet while Miriam sits back and watches. Don't we all keep fancy upholstered armchairs in our walk-in closets? You don't? No. I can't afford a walk-in closet. What do, you, what do you mean? Miriam has never heard of light bulbs, but damned if every room doesn't have an antique wing-back lurking chair. <laughs> I have one of those in my living room. Perfect. Good. 
All my furniture in the living room is all Chesterfield. Worth pointing out that Sarandon is wearing nothing up top but a thin t-shirt, even though she just came from work. Lab safety be damned. After Sarandon's one-woman wet t-shirt contest is over, Miriam decides to take her down to Suffragette City, and the two retire to the heavily mirrored bedroom for a hot and heavy makeout session on beds surrounded by even more gauzy curtains, perhaps the flappiest and gauziest we have seen so far. Considering all the candles, this place is an absolute death trap. Every moment here is a fire hazard. Oh, this is nothing compared to the book. They had so many scenes, so many scenes. This is just like they kind of condensed them all into one great big scene. And don't get me wrong, it's a great scene. Oh, yeah. Like, you read that book and it's just like, dang. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but... But the real, the real star of the show is the gauzy curtains. If I ever, if I, when I, once I, once I learn up on the rules for a vampire the masquerade, I'm a hundred percent gonna have gauzy curtains in there. Anyway, Miriam is going down on Sarandon's elbow like a phlebotomist with a job to do, and looks like she intends to lick Sarandon down to a nub. Eventually, they both drink some of each other's blood. <laughs> Kinky. They roll around on the bed and make love like two erotic androids from the future who don't understand human emotion, but are willing to give this thing called love a go. Uh, I, uh, I think I need more ice. Didn't you just grab some? Need more. Be right back. Calm down. Calm down. Deep, deep breaths. Think unsexy thoughts. <laughs> my proud beauty. I see you flustered with the vapors. Ew. Yep, that'll do it. Surrender to my mesmeric influences. When you squint like that, it's as if the wrinkles are trying to form a message. Fall under my spell of love. Oh god, not the little dance too. Behold my erotic Vandango. I'd call it harassment if it wasn't so deeply, deeply sad. Okay, let's just... Uh, uh, me, We're just gonna stick you in here. And you can stay in there until you can learn to behave yourself. wonder what all that was about. Super hot scene here. Catherine Deneuve really knows how to work it. She totally owns the whole sexy seductress thing. In fact, uh, the actress actually had a huge lesbian goth following after this film. I wouldn't be surprised if Bowie did too after this. Yeah, un unfortunately, um, at the time, early in the 80s, um, with the AIDS crisis just starting, a lot of people weren't all that aware but they knew that some weird disease was like striking people suddenly who had been very healthy before and then very quickly they just wasted away uh, similar to kind of the way bowie just like 
shrivels so quickly in the film. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's almost prophetic in that way because, like, it would have still been in theaters when the AIDS crisis hit front pages everywhere. I mean, like, movies stayed in theaters for, like, a good year, year and a half sometimes. Yeah, and also uh, people were starting to hear inklings of the connection between what came to be known as AIDS and people with hemophilia, which is a bleeding disorder. So folks had an idea that blood was somehow connected to this weird disease that they were hearing about. So with the vampire and all the blood and the drinking it all just kind of ties into that discomfort I think that people had at the time with this new disease that they didn't really understand and even though you know it wasn't fully understood at the time there was also the connection with the gay community because before it was called AIDS it was called GRID gay related immune disorder they thought only gays got it they didn't even want to treat it because it was this dirty thing that these dirty people did if you had it, you were just basically a pariah. They'd put like signs on the hospital room doors and people would just be ignored, patients. Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, and there were some doctors studying it um, to figure out what was um, going on, which kind of reminds me of Susan Sarandon's doctor character as a scientist studying the weird condition related to blood that causes this rapid deterioration of the monkey um, that we see early on. It's a very notable scene and ultimate death as well. So the kind of connection to medical research, trying to figure out how this weird blood disease worked. Yeah, that's an interesting parallel, actually, like you were saying about them withering away, you know, like have, kind of like wasting away to these 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 sort of mummies and then hope pointing out about how how people were just basically like shut into hospital rooms and left to languish and neglect. You know, that's that's really reminiscent of the way that Catherine Deneuve's character, uh, Miriam Blaylock, would just basically once they reached the point they were no longer comfortable to be around, then she would just stuff them in a box and leave them to languish and, and neglect. You know, say she loved them, but, you know, basically just shut them away to, to, to suffer. I think Bleak F, but one thing the movie does that it kind of takes that disconnect. This is all about the blood. Everything's in the blood and the homosexuality in the movie isn't a bad thing. Whereas in real life, it was. It was a very much a, a, a big scarlet letter on you. If you got this, you were probably gay. But this, the gayness has is kind of shown in a grid light. Because, you know, first it's a, it's a hetero couple who gets, who has all this. Exactly. Well, yeah, they definitely take a look at the swinger culture at the beginning, too. And they're very, they're very clearly sort of depicted as swingers and picking up their conquests and, and doing this kind of thing. You know, but the other thing. Were they swingers or was that really just dinner? <laughs> well, I think it's set up so that when you're watching it, it's if like you think they're swingers and then suddenly they whip out these little knives and then they start cutting on them. Like like you don't necessarily know what it's about when you go in to see it unless you watch the preview or something. So you go in and you sit down and you watch this movie. They don't expect that you will assume that they're vampires. We knew it's a vampire movie because it's been around for Christ at this point almost 40 years. You know, then you, you would go see a movie without knowing anything about it. And oh, oh, shit. Oh, these people are going to get down. Oh, wait a minute. You know, like, I see what's going on here. Uh, these people are serial killers. Oh, wait, no, they're not serial killers. They're vampires. Like, they, they definitely, they don't sell the vampires. Cannibals? Something? Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's why I mentioned about serial killers earlier. I mean, this is very much in the in the mindset, you know, this is very much in the minds of people at the time. You know, not to, to grab your thing and run off with it, but that's, that's, that's the point. People are thinking it's this. So there's there's a lot of overtones. Well, Catherine was also very well known for playing murderers who were sexy but really cold. When what else is a vampire other than sexy but also really cold at the same time? 
good point. You know, like a vampire uses sex to lure you in and then murders the living shit out of you. Isn't that like such an old trope about women? Like if they're sexual and if they're open with their sexuality, there must be something wrong with them. There's something else under the scene. Why would she want this? Why would she be so sexy and so overt unless she has an ulterior motive? You know, she's bisexual or she's a vampire or she's got a disease. Well, to bring it back all the way around to what you mentioned about the, the LGBT community, it occurs to me that at the time, I think the people, you know, within the subgroup within the LGBT community that suffered the most in AIDS were actually the bisexual people because they were the ones who were like being blamed for transmitting it from the gay community where it had been sequestered, you know, to the to the quote unquote straight population. And it, nobody at the time was willing to acknowledge the sexuality spectrum, even though it had been published by Alfred Kinsey fucking, you know, 30, 40 years before. Nobody wanted to acknowledge the existence. So it, it, this was the time it went from being that dirty gay disease to being something we actually have to think about and deal with because the quote unquote normal people are getting it now. Exactly. Quote unquote, normal people are getting it now. And it's all because of those, you know, all because of those traitorous bi people. And, and I think, you know, like if I recall correctly, I've had they really felt like they couldn't be visible even after, you know, even after HIV was no longer really a stigma. It kind of drove them underground or at least according to. You know, according to people within the community who have who have said so about their opinions to me, I don't want to you know, I don't want to out anybody or name them. But the stigma, I feel like, you know, at least as I understand it, lasted with with bi people for a lot longer than necessarily than it lasted with gay people. Well, I still hear that from people all the time Bi people, especially by women will be told, oh, you're just trying it out, you know, or just, you're just confused. Just or, a phase. No, you're, or like for guys, they'll say, oh, you were really gay, but you're just dating women because, you know, that's what you thought you were supposed to do. I've heard so often that bi people are told they're confused. And it's got to be so frustrating to know yourself and then constantly have people just tell you, no, you don't actually. I know better than you. Uh, but Deneuve is quite, quite sexy in this movie, yes. <laughs> To bring it back. <laughs> yeah, to bring it back. And, you know, she, she has said uh, often, like, there's there have been a lot of speculation about whether she was bi or whether she was gay. Um, there's been a lot of talk um, for a lot of years. Gay for about, pay? No, about whether or not, you know, she, she has never out oh, no. herself. People well, like, whether she was actually gay or rather she was only just playing gay parts is oh. what I meant. Yeah, fair point. Yeah, gay for pay. Yeah. I would say that given that Deneuve has only had a couple of marriages or is it just one she's been married very few times and then there was by a hollywood long standards by hollywood standards and then there was a long break when they didn't know who or if at all she was dating i think the lack of information led people to speculate that oh maybe she's actually you know lesbian that's why she's not dating men um she she has definitely had a very god god forbid you don't want a penis there must be something wrong with you <laughs> well no, it's funny she actually has had a very uh, i don't know if i'd say scandalous um but very provocative love life um uh, at the time when she was making the hunger she was 39 years old and dating a 19 year old good for her yeah it wouldn't have been no one would have batted an eye had the genders been reversed especially True. then yeah, nobody gives a damn if it's Leonardo DiCaprio, but you know when. I mean, he's only just now being called out on that, and he's what, like fifty? Yeah. And Bowie also. Bowie went back and forth on, you know, whether he identified as bisexual or not. I think he came out and then kind of went back in the closet, you know, mm -hmm. just because it wasn't the time for him. It wasn't. He was not well received. 
Yeah. And he said in later interviews, either that he either denied it or he said he regretted it. Kind of his stance on it changed over time. Yeah, he, he came out in 1972 and right when there was a pretty strong backlash against the gay community um, as a result of HIV, he, he regretted publicly outing himself. Yeah, it was a, not an easy time to be, uh, to be a bi or a gay man in the early 80s. It was not an easy time to be anything but a cishet white male. Yeah, if you fit the Reagan definition of, uh, of what society should look like, then it was an easy time. Default American person. Yeah, apparently, I was just checking my facts. It says uh, Deneuve has, has not had a public relationship since she broke up with her most recent guy in 1991. Um, it's, um, Which was actually 30 years ago. 30 years ago. Old right now. Yeah, 30 years ago. And apparently she's kissed five women in different films. So sometimes people think that. More than just yeah. that you're a good actress. <laughs> oh, so, I mean, there's been I mean, times have that. changed. If you look at like Katy Perry or Lady Gaga, they kiss mm-hmm. five women in a single music video. <laughs> the times they are a changing. They really are. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Andy Slack, Ethan Ireland, Daniel Scribner, Andrea Palladino, Zachariah Burks, Andre Luke Martinez, and Hope Bravo. Written by Hope Bravo and Andy Slack. Story designed by Andy Slack. Produced by Ethan Ireland and Andy Slack. Mixed and mastered by Ethan Ireland. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com. Email us at thecinemaniasociety at gmail.com. And check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania and Reddit at r slash thecinemaniasociety. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Ko-Fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. The Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.